This is Tales from the Pros, where business leaders and influencers share their stories of inspiration, struggles, and successes. And I'm your host, Michael Giorgio. Hey everyone, good morning. This is Michael Giorgio, co-founder of Imagine Ovation, and welcome to Tales from the Pros. Uh, we have a very special guest here today. His name is David Gardner, and he's the founder and managing partner of Co-Founders Capital here in the Triangle. Uh, David is actually a very well-known tech startup investor, and he's also a successful serial entrepreneur. And Co-Founders Capital is actually a free startup accelerator here in the Triangle, an early stage seed fund focused on B2B software ventures in the Triangle. David, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It's an thank honor. You. Thank you, Michael. Absolutely. So, David, I really want to get to know a little bit about you and how you got into the investment game. Kind of what led mm -hmm. you to be where you are today and how did you start uh, Co-Founders Capital? Sure. Well, I was a, a serial entrepreneur for my entire life. I always tell entrepreneurs that... Uh, I've been an entrepreneur a lot longer than I've been an investor. I'm still kind of new to that. But uh, when I sold my sixth company, my wife made me promise I would never start another one. And I think any entrepreneur can tell you it's just an insane amount of work. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so I just started, uh, I decided I would retire and just kind of coach and mentor the kids for free and um, started doing that. And I suddenly got a lot of people who wanted uh, mentoring. And so I was having... Uh, three or four teams a day coming through my house and my wife didn't actually like that either so um, she said you need to find an office somewhere <laughs> and about that time the town of Cary was starting a um, an accelerator and they asked me if I would run it and uh, so I uh, I the uh, co-founders capital lab is uh, it's a, um, a free accelerator and the town sponsors it and I sponsor it so it's the only one around that I know of that's 100% free um, mm -hmm. no one pays anything and uh, includes the furniture the internet you know conference rooms and business consulting okay. hands-on everyday business consulting and so we've had a lot of great companies uh, come through there how many years ago was this when did you start gosh uh, like three years ago okay. um, I did some angel investing when I was uh, mentoring out of my house um, I did actually a lot. Uh, I, you know, I realized that uh, some of the the teams I was working with could really execute on everything we talked about, mm -hmm. and we just every time we got together, everything we had talked about was done, and uh, I got a confidence, and uh, so I started writing uh, some checks, and I ended up investing in seventeen of those early wow. pre-stage company pre-revenue companies. And of those, uh, 16 are still growing and, and viable businesses today. Amazing. And are all the startups that you invested, are they all local here in the Triangle? Or did you ever invest outside of North Carolina? A little bit, but yeah. I'd say 95 or more. Actually, I have, a, I have an investment in Winston-Salem, and I have one investment in D.C. But of the 35 <laughs> companies that I'm in, all the rest are in the Triangle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, I mean, what really – so essentially – when you were younger, did you always see yourself as owning various businesses and selling them? Or how did you ever, you know, what did you, how did you kind of, when you were younger, were you, did you always see yourself as starting up different companies? You know? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to say that I had some grand plan, uh, but no, I stumbled yeah. into pretty much everything. Um, I actually, um, uh, my undergraduates were philosophy and music, and then I did a master's in theology and dead languages, mm -hmm. which uh, I always say the best thing that school did for me is it left me with absolutely no marketable skills, <laughs> uh, which means basically you, you starve or you become an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And um, I just wanted to, uh, uh, to pay back some student loans, and so I went to NC State and started studying computer science and business. And... Um, I never uh, quite, they claimed me there, but I never actually uh, quite graduated. Um, but I did uh, pick up some skills and started writing software for people on the side, building, okay. building computers for them, and um, putting in networks and things like that. And so it kind of uh, just totally by accident um, went into the entrepreneurial route. That's pretty cool. That's kind of how it was for me. I, I felt like it, was, it happened very randomly for me. It was like a blessing in disguise, how sure. it kind of happened. Um, I, I always had all these growing up, I always had all these, um, you know, aspirations of, of owning my own business and, and being an entrepreneur, but I never actually thought mm -hmm. I would do it. I was like, Oh, I'll do it when I'm like, you know, 50 or, you know, when I have like 30, 40 years experience, but I never thought I would kind of do it so young. And I know that you have, um, you know, you've, 
invested in so many companies, so many of these startups with a lot of young, really young entrepreneurs, and they're probably their, yeah. their um, you know, mid-20s, even less, right? Yeah, I mean, they. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. There seems to be two groups. Either they're pretty young, still in school, or right out of school. Mm-hmm. Um, the Filter Easy guys actually dropped out of school, um, um, yeah, I which, them, which yeah. I don't condone, but uh, <laughs> uh, they're doing all right. Um, but uh, then the next, I don't get a lot of middle-aged entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. um, but then I do get um, older entrepreneurs that have uh, either they've retired and now they want to pursue something that they've wanted to do their whole life, or they, um, or they save up enough money that they feel like they can go a mm-hmm. year and kind of pursue this. Yeah. Um, and so uh, those are kind of like the two times. Once you get in your middle years and you've got kids and mortgages and responsibilities, it gets, it gets much, much harder mm-hmm. to take the kind of risk that entrepreneurs take. Yeah. So, for example, like Filter Easy, I, I definitely—I mean, I know them. They're pr- they're pretty well known around here. I know they're they're uh, doing very very well. Um, well, your experience in investing in a, in a company like Filter Easy, can you explain kind of the process of what it takes for a startup to receive a round of funding? Um, do you think it's all about timing and proof of concept? What do you think? What, what's the process of really receiving funding? What do they have well, to go through? I mean, to get funded, you have to uh, show that you have a viable business model, or at least you've thought through it to a point where you can prove out some assumptions mm-hmm. that if you applied money to it, you know, it would scale. Um, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of, I think, investors will tell you you're not serious till you quit your day job, and I, I think that's nuts. Um, mm-hmm. You can do a lot to de-risk a venture before you quit your day job. Um, you can do prototypes if it, you're doing technology or drawings. You can take them around and show them to people. You can line up potential buyers and yeah. beta customers. I mean, there's a ton you can do uh, before you start your burn. You want to mm-hmm. keep your burn as low as possible because that translates into how much of your company you're going to own in the end. There's really two tricks. One, you got to have a successful business. And two, you got to have enough equity that you still care yeah. in, in the end. So um, I tell entrepreneurs, look, we're in this together. You're investing. You're uh, you're an investor just like I am. You're putting in sweat equity and time mm-hmm. and working for no salary or certainly a below market salary. Yep. And I'm putting in money and time as well. So let's de-risk this thing together. Let's research it. Let's line up some revenue. Let's see um, if this uh, is this something that we really want to mm-hmm. put our uh, you know put our resources behind. Did you? What made you really start? Uh, niching out to B2B tech, technology, uh, more like SaaS products. Mm-hmm. What, what, why is that your area? Kind of what, did you see, just see a, a higher demand in that area for success or what was the main reason? Yeah, um, well, I mean, we have done some B2C, but I'm predominantly a B2B investor or a B2B2C. Um, mm-hmm. um, like Filter Easy has a B2B and a B2C uh, piece of their business. Um, B2C is just a harder business uh, around here because mm-hmm. of our lack of capital. And you hear this over and over again. Yep, I have. Yep. We are the second best place in the entire <laughs> country outside of Silicon Valley to start a technology business. That's amazing. And uh-huh. we are the 38th in available funding. So there's just this huge gap between smart, coachable you know, entrepreneurs and um, and the amount of money that's mm-hmm. available to them. Uh, I always say, you know, we look at these great success stories around here like SaaS and Red Hat and Cree. Yep. I, I think we already have those companies here today. It's mm-hmm. just whether they're going to stay here and grow their businesses here. Um, I've got an article coming out this weekend in the TVJ, and one of the things I, I talk about is, um, um, you know, we'll spend uh, – and this is, I'm talking about state government, we'll spend hundreds of millions of dollars to bribe a company to move back here mm-hmm. so we can get the tax basis and put almost nothing into actually keeping those companies here, you know, to start with. Yeah. And so um, I'm really excited about um, some things like the Venture Capital Multiplier Fund that, if done correctly, could really encourage people to start more funds here, which is what we need, especially in the seed round. Um, we can get later stage investment here. My companies, after we did the seed round and got them, you know, cash flowing, we've attracted. My companies have gotten follow-on investments from people like Mark Cuban and, and wow. you know, Cindy Whitehead, Steve Case, um, 
Uh, and then strategics like uh, Lowe's Venture and uh, Kaiser Permanente put $12.5 yeah. million into one of my companies. We can get money here, later stage money. Mm-hmm. But no one's going to fly here from California to write a couple hundred K early round, high risk check mm-hmm. in a company that's going to need a lot of mentoring. It's the early stage investing that we've really got to do ourselves. No one's going to do that for us. So there's a lot more. Do you think there's a lot more angel investors in the triangle than venture capitalists? Um, angel investing. Um, there are several angel groups. I'm on the board of one of them. Yep. And they're they're good. Um, the problem is our angel groups in this area typically aren't big enough to lead a round, even a okay. seed round. I mean, a typical seed round today is you know three to five hundred k, um, and your typical uh, angel group can pull together a hundred k. So they still need someone. To, uh, to lead that round. Mm-hmm. And those are going to be the early stage uh, venture funds. I always tell entrepreneurs, you know, if you're parting with equity, always get more than dollars. If all you got was dollars, you got screwed. Um, you really want to, um, and people think raising money is a problem. It's actually an opportunity mm-hmm. to get the right people aligned with your venture. People who try to take money from people who are going to be your first customer or who are going to really provide some, some strategic uh, yeah. mentoring That's in the process. Strategic, yep. But you want to get, um, get, get more than money, um, and raising capital is a great way to select who your partners are going to be and really help you make that successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome, uh, I, you know I've, I have a lot of a lot of friends in the area that have, that have started their own business and have amazing ideas. Everyone has this amazing idea and concept, right? They come to you, they're probably like, "Oh, I have this yeah. the next Facebook, the next Twitter." Uh, when they're pitching to you, kind of what what things do you look for when you're hearing a pitch? Uh, I know it's not just about the pitch. I know there's a lot more, but when you are hearing a pitch, do you think mm-hmm. is it? I mean, do they have to be prepared with certain things? I mean, what, what kind of what do you expect? To, to hear when you receive when you what do you expect to receive when you hear a pitch? Well, I don't know that we are um, typical at co-founders. Um, we don't need a buttoned-up, you know. Uh, this is everything exactly the way we're going to do with mm-hmm. a bow on it, and that's what the typical venture capitalist I think looks for. But okay. remember, we, we're much more entrepreneur than we are. You know, I look for people who would do mm-hmm. what I would do in yeah. that situation, and do they think? You know, there's a reason that um, the business schools teach through case studies, you know, because the right answer in business is always it depends. Mm-hmm. And yep, that's true. So it's more about it's not it's more, less about right and wrong answers. and It's more about a philosophy mm-hmm. of we're going to model something out based on certain assumptions. And then we're going to go back and we're going to test those assumptions as best we can to see if they're true. There's always a level of risk, but you can de-risk something substantially by yeah. uh, by checking out those assumptions. And so we just go through the process. We model the business, taking everything at face value. And then we start going and coming up with a plan on how we're going to test every one of those assumptions. Uh, what, what, what will people pay for this? What's the sales cycle going to be for this? Mm-hmm. Um, what competitive differentiators are out there and how much are they going to hurt us? And what's the lifetime value of the customer or what's churn going to look like and we start trying to put those things uh, together mm-hmm. and I always say if all the assumptions are right every business works mm-hmm. um, but they're not I always say half the assumptions are wrong and I never know which half yeah. so uh, we've got to get in we got to work it and we got to figure out say, hey if it's something I don't want to invest in it's probably something that you don't want to invest in either yeah. so let's let's research this thing together yeah and are, are you always looking for startups that essentially have some sort of exit strategy uh, or, you know, in terms of them selling, they, they say, hey, I want to sell this thing in 10, 15 years. Is that not something you hear very often? Does that just kind of happen when it happens? Or do you always, do you always expect some of these startups to always have an exit strategy or do you think they want to create like a long-term brand and never kind of sell it? You know what I mean? Well, um, for an investor, you definitely don't want a business that's going to become a lifestyle business. There mm-hmm. has to be, at some point, it's reasonable for an investor to say, hey, I'd like to you know, be paid back. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we put redemption, as most investors do, after you know, five or six years, there's a redemption, which kind of forces a discussion around exit. But I don't really have a problem with that. I, um, I tell my entrepreneurs, my entrepreneurs tend to be young, and that first exit changes your lifestyle. And so when we're saying, should we take this offer or not take this offer, mm-hmm. I tend to look at the entrepreneurs and just say, what do you guys want to do? It's going to change your lifestyle, not mine. Yeah. Um, are you ready? Are you tired? 
Are there competitors nipping at your heels? No one calls you crazy for taking that money off the table, starting your next venture, and you don't need me and my capital for that one. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's just life choices. Yeah. But at some point, you do need to think about um, getting capital back. And I didn't finish answering your question really on the B2C versus yeah. B2B. That's a pretty uh, significant thing because, I mean, B2C ventures can be huge. They can be, you know, most of your unicorns, you know, with billion-dollar market caps have come out of B2C offerings. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to predict. It's, um, it's like writing a bestseller book. Boy, it's great if it happens. But uh, <laughs> one of our thesis with our fund is that we, at plan, I need to see a business that can cash flow on our investment or our investment plus a couple hundred K more Um, because that's about what my fund can do. And um, it's very dangerous with the B2C plan. Usually you see you're going to build this, you're going to put it out there, and then you'll see somewhere, and then we raise $5 million for marketing. And that's a risky thing for an early-stage investor around here. I mean, because uh, you kind of got your back up against the wall. If that, mm-hmm. if raising that next round is contingent on you being in business or not being in business. Um, if you don't get multiple offers, you know, you're going to get, uh, you know, you can really get uh, crammed down. The new money coming in will tend to take care of the entrepreneurs. They need those guys or, or girls. Yeah. But uh, once our money is spent, the early stage investors, uh, we are expendable. And we are the mm-hmm. ones who will be the casualty in that next big round of funding um, if it doesn't go well. Mm-hmm. So with a B2B venture, you know, I like enterprise B2B software. I, if they get in trouble, I can go sell a couple of those deals and get them, you know, if, you're, if your burn's $25,000, $30,000 a month and the customers are paying you four or 5000 a month to use your software, you're always just a few sales away from getting your head above water. Mm-hmm. So I like companies that can eat what they kill. Um, we can continue to grow organically um, and raise money when we want to raise money, I love when it. we get a good deal. That's awesome. And so there's nothing wrong with B2C ventures. It's just um, a little riskier around here, well, a lot riskier around here because of, the, of our lack of capital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what, what tips would you give to current and future entrepreneurs in preparing them to receive funding and what, what really do they need to avoid? Um, I mean, it's okay to come like to us with a, an unfinished idea. I know you're going to be um, interviewing uh, Monica from Mix, mm-hmm. um, and you know Monica, you know her original idea was I want to sell B two C this recipe app online, and we were like, really? Do you really want to do that? <laughs> you know, there's what are the people going to pay? You know, ninety nine cents, mm-hmm. and how much marketing spend is it going to take to uh, to get the millions of users to make this viable? And there are free recipe apps already out there. And uh, but as we worked through that with her, we found she was very open to coachability. Um, I walk away from more deals for lack of coachability than that it's a bad idea. Um, I want a deal that I I want a deck of cards if I'm gambling that I can stack. Yeah, you know. Um, I don't go to Vegas. It's too much like my day job. Uh, but, if they, <laughs> but if they let me stack the cards, I would play all the time. And that's mm-hmm. what it is. If we, but our teams have to make all the decisions. I go, we don't make any decisions. You're the CEO. You have to make the hard calls. We can't mm-hmm. hold you accountable unless you make the decisions. But I want someone who's going to listen to good advice. It's okay to argue. You know, I like a good argument. Uh, we get around all sides of something. But I want to know that at least what we're talking about is being considered and mm-hmm. weighed in. And if we don't have coach, a coachable entrepreneur, we have no influence over the company, yeah. which means I might as well buy stock in the stock market if I'm going to be a passive investor. Um, but what you need to have, I mean, when they come in, it can be a general idea. Here's a problem that I want to fix. And, and I think I have a good solution to fixing this problem. We like better, faster, cheaper. I like a demonstrable ROI mm-hmm. that a logical business person is going to look at and go, oh, yeah, you know, that, I, I can see that. So they do need to be able to say, um, maybe not prove through a case study or whatever, but they need to be able to at least intuitively say, here's a problem. And it's a big problem, not a marginally better, you know, nice to have. Yeah, yeah, um, I understand. A pretty big problem, and here's a good solution that I think to it. Now, this that you ha- you kind of have to have, and we may modify that some to 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 tweak it or add more value props to that. 
But ultimately, most of our consulting is more around the go-to-market strategy. What is okay. the minimum viable product? What does that look like? Right, the and, MVP, and, yeah. Yeah, and who do we get? Um, can we sell? So much, people think of uh, businesses as, uh, you know, direct sales, you know, and you're, you hire salespeople and they get on the phone or you do some lead gen and, mm-hmm. and, it's, and you got a, a, your cost of acquiring customers versus what they pay you. And it's trench warfare. Yeah, you know, yeah. you, you inch the needle up a little every month. And yes, you, <laughs> I get it, yeah. you have to do that for a while to prove your product works and that you have referenceable customers. But very quickly, we want to move those companies to, uh, uh, to, we want to finesse them. And this is that BizDev article you were talking about yeah. that I wrote a while back, the difference between sales and BizDev. Business development, yep. Um, BizDev says, I want to not just sell. I want to find someone who's going to sell this product for us. You know, I want their sales guys to carry a quota on my product. I want to get my product attached to that guy's product. So every time he sells it, they sell mine. Mm-hmm. I want to tap into somebody else's marketing budget. But that's how you don't have a lot of resources in a startup. So you've got to figure out how to leverage other people's resources by making yourself indispensable to them. And that's probably where we earn our keep. Mm-hmm. And do you see any specific industry that, I mean, you deal with different, how many industries do you think you've invested in different industries? Probably like over 10, 20 easily? Healthcare. No. There are six or seven industries and that we like. We like um, healthcare IT. We like HR IT. Okay. We like um, education tech. We like some fintech. Um, my first company, and you'll appreciate this, Michael, was a uh, software development company. Yeah. And my one services-based company, which eventually you're going to learn that's a lot of work. It uh, is. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I had a couple hundred developers working for me, and we were really uh, cranking out the projects. But I realized if I ever stop working that hard, all the money stops mm-hmm. coming in, and <laughs> I really need some kind of IP, you know, that I could more scalable business. Mm-hmm. And we talked. I talked to a lot of people who were there. But what a great place to learn your chops, though. Um, automating those projects for big companies. Um, I ran over 600 projects, uh, and it, what a training ground that is. You learn the workflows in healthcare, oh, yeah. pharma, Part 11 compliance, you know, CRM. Mm-hmm. I wrote yep. Salesforce.com at least six times for different clients. Wow. You'd think it would have occurred to me that there was a commercial product there. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, uh, crazy. But I was in services mode, and it took me several years before I got my head up out of the weeds and says, you know, I need to write my own product mm-hmm. and, and, and get ahead of this. Do investors ever, from what I heard, is that it's very difficult for, at least for our service-oriented audience, the service companies, it's harder for them to get funding, isn't it, than than SaaS product, an actual physical product. You know what I mean? It's a lot harder than... Yeah, a, a, a sophisticated investor is generally not going to put money in a services-based yeah. company because we, you know, an investor wants to put some money in to build something and then see that really hockey stick up and take off. Yeah. And how fast can you uh, add people to some SaaS-based product on, you know, on a virtual server? You know, there, mm-hmm. it's zero gravity. Um of course, taking on project work, you know, you've got, you know, you've got to recruit people and mm-hmm. vet them and train them and apply them to a project. Yep. And so a services-based company can make you a good living, but it's probably not going to be the ROI that a, an investor is going to look for. Absolutely they would rather sense. lose their money a couple of times to hit one that really takes off. Yeah. And uh, so that, that's more in line with what investors want. It's easier for, uh, for customers to adopt the product uh, on a, you know, then back the, adopt the service. At least that mm-hmm. would, I would think. I don't mind services if it helps to sell a product. We yeah. have some companies where there's some consulting wrapped around their their products, and that's okay. But uh, that's not the scalable part of the business. It's more of a necessary evil. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what technology trends do you see emerging, David? And which ones kind of do you see dying? Uh, I mean, the, you know, technology is evolving. Every single day, sometimes it's even it's hard for us as a, as a software <clears throat> company to keep up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you see anything? Obviously, other except I mean, we are we're all kind of very aware of artificial intelligence, IoT. But do you see any type of technology trends that you're seeing with these startups um, that are really booming and emerging? Yeah, um, and I talked about this a few weeks ago at the Startup Grind, their technology conference that I keynoted. And I said, I I think this is the most exciting time 
for a technology entrepreneur, an IT technology entrepreneur, to be alive. I mean... Um, Gary Vee says the same thing. <laughs> who? Gary Vaynerchuk. Oh, yeah. Says the exact same things. I mean, yes. We, I mean, it was great. You know, the Internet came out, and then there was, you know, the Internet of Things, and then there's mass data, and now there's AI. Automation. But what we're seeing is now a, 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 a melding of these things. Um, AI can look at massive data sets. So you're getting all this data now from wearable devices and Internet of Things, just massive, massive data sets. And AI can effectively look at tens of thousands of data sets and find, you know, correlation between these things. And that can, that can build decision support systems. It can do uh, the potential of that is, mm-hmm. is just unbelievable. Um, one of our companies, Empath IQ, is a, a group of doctors. And basically, they took medical outcomes and they applied it to decision-making in the emergency room. So, you know, if you, if you present with chest pains, doctors are very influenced by anecdotal things that they remember. Yeah. You know, I did that once and the, and, and the, the lady died. Yeah, that's, you know, so that's mm. going to affect your decision-making. Oh, yeah. But now with this, they're applying thousands of outcomes to this situation, to someone the same age, same drugs, same family history, presenting the same way, and they get the best uh, match they can, and they go, there's three things you can do now, and here's the statistical probability of the outcome being improved of these three things. So now they can, there's a 32% X will happen. So now they're really armed with... Um, Information to not just say, you know, well, I think this is a better course of action or this is the standard protocol for everybody. This is a very specific statistical outcome data for this person standing right. in front of me. And the other thing we found is that with that particular company, um, the doctors stopped overprescribing. So instead of going, oh, you know, and I'll throw in some antibiotics on top of that, you know, or oh, I'll keep you for another night of observation just in case. Well, now they can look and go, there's only a point. Six percent chance that staying a night in observation is going to improve your outcome, and it costs the hospital five thousand wow. dollars. That's what's wrong with healthcare. Um, I think I'll not have you stay. Well, <laughs> and so, so it not only improved outcomes, it reduced the cost of healthcare yeah. in general. Now that that's got our name all over it. Better, faster, cheaper through use of data uh, and and technology. And it's, and I saw. Um on your, you know, on your LinkedIn about, is it Empath, how do you say it? Empath, Empath IQ. Empath yeah. IQ. That's one of your products, or is that one of the startups you invested in? That's one of our um, startups that we invested through Co-Founders uh, Fund One. Okay, cool, cool. And I know that, you know, we talked a little bit about your book earlier. You launched it two to three years ago. Tell, tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about your book. You know, yeah, that was just a labor of love. I, I never planned to uh, passion project to, to be a great you know <laughs> writer or anything. Although it sold a lot of copies, um, and part of that's probably because I kept the price down around three bucks. But uh, <laughs> um, that was I, I, most of that is I got tired of saying the same things over and over again. Um, and so uh, each chapter is a hat that an entrepreneur needs. You know, the banker's hat. You know, the navigator's hat, the sales hat. The Anyway, I go through all the different hats, and I, it's just a very, very practical uh, book mm-hmm. on, uh, um, on what to do, um, especially towards the end when I talk <clears throat> about the leadership and the differences between leadership and management. Um, which may be an article I need to write for the for the tech. I'm doing a column in the in the WRL TechWire now, and, and actually that gives me an idea. That'll probably be my next article. Cool. Look the difference to it. between leadership and management. Management. But uh, it's a very practical book, and I can hand it to our my entrepreneurs now. And now we kind of have once they read that book, we have a vocabulary, and we can mm-hmm. um, and we kind of know the path that we're going down. The one thing I found, though, is under the manager's hat, when they've got two or three people in a room and a dog and some folding tables, um, management is, is easy. You're, uh, you know, you're all there together, and it's a real team. But as you start scaling that business, and all of a sudden you have 25, 35 employees, now you've got to have managers, and you've got to have a chain of command, and yep. clear leadership and expectation setting and all of these things and a lot of times the entrepreneurs reach that inflection point and I tell them go back and read read those chapters again and they go I've read it and I go, go read it again <laughs> and they read it again and they go so that's what you were talking about so sometimes you've got to live through something before you realize uh, the value of oh, yeah, what you're, absolutely of what you're reading yeah. yep it's it's pretty cool that you're talking about leadership because 
um, I feel that you know to be a leader, you really have to learn. I know you're you're talking about the differences in management, but you really have to learn how to delegate sure. the, the right work uh, to to the right people. And I think that's why as these startups as they grow and they scale. Hiring is, is very, very important. It's critical sure. because it's about really about your team. If you hire the right people, um, you can delegate that work to them, um, mm-hmm. and you can grow and scale your, scale yeah. your company. Um, well, I mean, great entrepreneurs, almost everyone I know is a control freak. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got to be in control. They've got to know everything going on and all the buttons, and they can do many, many things at once well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great. That will make you successful the first year. Um, but then as you start to grow the business and have teams of people and you're starting to hire very competent people to run parts of the business that you may not be as competent in, right. um, all of a sudden those skills, that personality starts working against you and you become the bottleneck in the organization. Yeah. And uh, so it's really important to let people, entrepreneurs need to learn to let their people be entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're running sales or you're running uh, you know, technology or you're running customer success, guess what? You are the lord of your fiefdom. You get to make the decisions. I'm not going to tell you tactically how to do things. We're going to agree on some goals, some definitions of success. Mm-hmm. How you get there, totally up to you. That is extremely liberating. For uh, It shows a lot of respect for someone right. and their judgment. And, hey, I'm here to help you, but I'm not going to tell you how to do it. You know, um, uh, you're in charge. And, and that is how you get the best out of your people. And as long as they're accountable and they hit their, their metrics, um, let them be lord of their fiefdom. And I think entrepreneurs really struggle with that because right. their business is their baby. And it's very hard to leave And they baby. wear a lot of hats. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that's, that's great, David. Yeah, that's awesome advice. Um, so what's, what, what's the future of Co-Founders Capital? Well, you know, we'll continue to do funds, and um, and we're having uh, we're having a lot of fun. I really enjoy what we're doing. Um, I, you know, our 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 accelerator is our charity. Um, we fund that, and and we work there full time, and we mm-hmm. try to help anybody who comes in the door, even if it's a company that we would never invest in. Um, we try to help everyone, and at least cool. make introductions and give give them our thoughts. Um, and then the ones that uh, do really well and can execute on what we're talking about and fit the theme for our fund, um, then uh, those we also want to be able to, uh, you know, to, to, to capitalize. And so we're having fun. Uh, we feel really appreciated. I, I love being around the energy and the passion of entrepreneurs, people living by their wits, dodging the bullets. Um, everything else is just seems boring mm-hmm. um, after have, you know being at that, and you know for as long as I'm able, I want to have a front row seat to that the rest of my life. Cool. Well, so I want to jump the gun a little bit here and kind of talk about I would say jump more on the ph- philanthropic side of business mm-hmm. uh, and really talk about struggles and challenges in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, I mean, you've been you've worked for so many different companies and been involved and, and own, you know, various businesses. And, um, you know, that's why they call you serial entrepreneur. Uh, so with your experience, what struggles do you think are, I wouldn't say kind of what struggles are essential to go through as a startup and how do they overcome them? You know, cause you realize a lot of startups, they go through, they all kind of go through different struggles, yes, but they all still kind of go through very similar struggles. So what do you think those are, and how do you think is the mm-hmm. best way to, for them to overcome it? Well, it really depends on the entrepreneur. We're all, we all gravitate towards what we know and what we're comfortable with. We may get a, uh, a coder who's got a great idea. And um, the problem is they're very comfortable coding. They're not very comfortable in sales. And so they continue to tweak the product and add whistles and bells. And instead of getting outside their comfort zone and getting out there and selling what they got and getting in front of people and getting real feedback from customers. So we have to encourage them to step away from the keyboard. And uh, Mm -hmm. other times we have people who who are much more comfortable with sales and marketing and they just assume the technology is going to work. And for them, we have to talk about a QA process and, you know, a a structural rollout methodology and... um, so it just depends on where they are. Um, there, there needs to be a, a sense of urgency. And, and, you know, that's the great thing about the way we model the businesses. We model every month and where we're going to be every month 
with every expense, with every sale, with every right. hire. We model the whole thing out based on those assumptions. And every month, we sit down with our entrepreneurs and we say, what did we learn this month? Which of these assumptions needs to be tweaked up or down? Maybe the sales cycle is a little slower than we thought, or mm-hmm. maybe the customers are willing to pay a little more than we thought. But we're tweaking those assumptions and it's reforecasting the business. And so uh, it keeps you honest. It keeps you from, um, uh, you know, from focusing on the things that you like or you're more comfortable. That's the problem with being an entrepreneur is you have to wear all the hats, not just the ones you're super comfortable under. Absolutely. That's, that's right. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you ever see your experience with a lot of these startups, do you ever see them kind of getting burnt out from all the, from, you know, it's, I mean, you know it's hard. you built so many businesses yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, can a lot of them, are they stronger than you think they are? Like are, a lot of them, are they just, they're so tough and they're so strong-willed. They're just, they're going to do whatever it takes to overcome anything that, that comes their way. Or do they ever get burnt out? Or they don't really mm-hmm. come to you for that? Because kind of, I know you're a strategic partner with a lot of these, these different companies. Oh, no, I've gotten some late-night yeah. uh, calls. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of times when, when everything's going great, you know, no problem. Yeah. But uh, it often doesn't, and you're running out of capital, um, or you're having <laughs> leadership issues, and maybe there's a mutiny in the ranks, and uh, there are all kinds of issues that can come up. And uh, that's when um, you got to sit down. And I think, I think mostly... What we do is we reaffirm the entrepreneurs and just let them know, hey, you're doing the right stuff. Whether it works out, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. What's important is that you are systematically doing the right things. Right. And, um, and we give them the courage to, uh, to keep, keep doing that and, and to realize that, you know, hey, it's tough. You know, we told you it was a bumpy road. So every bump just reminds you you're on the right road. Yeah, you know? I agree. But don't doubt yourself. Um, there's no, there's no magic, you know, it's just hard work and following a plan and systematically, you know, hitting your, hitting your, if you, if you need to make 35 calls a day to be successful, then set aside the time and make those 35 calls every mm-hmm. day, but, but just work your plan and, um, and don't doubt yourself. Cool. And as these companies grow and they scale, uh, do you have a process? Does, does your company, Co-Founders Capital, have like a st- strategic process in place in order for them to scale, or do you think it depends on the, on the type of business? Do you think there's like a certain one, two, three-step process for a, any type of business to scale to manage the growth? Because mm-hmm. growing is it's a great problem to have, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's awesome, but you have to make sure that you can, you can manage it. Sure. You know, efficiently. Yeah, you want to grow at the, as fast as you can mm-hmm. without running out of money. Are, are hurting customer retention. And so I call it surfing the edge. You want to be right on the edge of that wave, right on the edge. You don't want to raise more capital than you need. You're just giving away equity for nothing. So, But you want to raise enough so that you're deploying everything you make back into sales and marketing and growth. Yep. That's what the SaaS-based model is all about. And so uh, <clears throat> it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you definitely can... Uh, uh, over expand, you know, and get things. Uh, a lot of times they hire. I'll see models where you're just hiring so many people. I'm like, when are you going to train these people? <laughs> you know, you got to. And if you do say I'm going to hire that many people, you're probably going to hire the wrong ones because right. you can't find and vet that many people, you know, that quickly. So sometimes we're telling our companies to slow down, and sometimes we're telling them to go faster. Uh, I've got a company right now with a lot of money in the bank, and I'm like, why? And, you know, you've you've uh, you know you can just turn turn down sales a little bit and the cash will catch up. So why aren't you deploying that additional cash to grow faster? But usually it's, um, you know, it is a plan. We want to get the companies with the amount of capital that we put into the next inflection point in valuation. Okay. Um, we always say, you're diluted moving forward, I'm diluted. And I don't like to be diluted that much. So let's figure out a way to, uh, to do this with as little cash as possible and get to that next inflection point in valuation where we prove the next set of assumptions so the next investor coming in, the A round or the B round investor, is going to be comfortable because the valuation they're willing to pay is a function of how much you've de-risked this. Right. And so we, we really work everything towards that A round or that B round story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. That's, that's great. Um, are there any specific tips that you would give to entrepreneurs on just overall general of how to succeed 
in your mind what comes to you like what do you what are the the tips you can give any future business leaders any future entrepreneurs on how to succeed you know just be um you know be very enthusiastic don't doubt yourself um, work the plan. It's a massive amount of work, and you've got to be willing to mm-hmm. put your head down to it and check the boxes every day. Just go down your list. Keep checking the boxes. Just do the right stuff, and eventually the cream rises to the top. And uh, But, I mean, there is no one skill set. Right. If there was one skill set, it would probably be um, just effective communications. Uh, I cannot believe that you can get a degree in entrepreneurship from any one of our three major universities in the Triangle and never take a class in sales. Uh, that just blows my mind still today. Um, I took a 12-week Dale Carnegie sales course back in the, I don't know, 80s, early 90s. And if I had to trade any one of my degrees for that 12-week course, I'd do it in a heartbeat mm-hmm. because it changed the trajectory of my career more than anything else. How to talk effectively, how to state value props, how to overcome objections, um, all of those things will, because <clears throat> no matter how smart you are, no matter how great your technology is, if you can't communicate it effectively yeah. in terms that, the other, that are important to the other person, the person you're talking to, you're not going anywhere. And so I think that if there was one thing lacking in our entrepreneurship, in our entrepreneurs today, and it doesn't have to be Dale Carnegie, lots of great sales schools, yeah. are just getting with someone who can help you put together your first thing we do is we redo the sales deck for our entrepreneurs because it's usually horrible mm. um, it's talking about functions and features I'm yeah. like, no one wants your functions and features if you sold them a blue pill that gave them the same benefits they just buy your blue pill yeah you yeah. know we, we we need to talk in terms of what this is going to do for you and why not necessarily the functions and features are just due diligence you know to, to prove that what you're saying is true when they get to that stage so, and that's interesting you said that about the educational piece. So you think education definitely plays a role in being an entrepreneur because you know, you know how there's a lot of, there's just a lot of people out there, a lot of successful people out there that say, oh, you don't need an education at all to have a successful company or build a business. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's so hard because once you've been educated, it's hard to imagine what you were like before mm-hmm. you know you had that big picture um so it's it's hard i think we tend to devalue education as entrepreneurs um but you know i'm not sure that's fair because mm-hmm. we're thinking as an educated person yeah and uh and you know who's to say that had i not studied philosophy you know that i i think I think one thing that the study of religion and philosophy did for me is I looked behind the curtain and I realized there was no magic. You know, just about anything can be done if you're willing to think about it and work, because that's just what other people did. And And work hard. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So uh, why not? um, And so I don't know. I I think that there's just some maturing that needs to be done. And school is a great place to get that, that maturing and to get exposure to a vocabulary and learn how to use a spreadsheet and some basic things. But no, I mean, school's not going to make you an an entrepreneur. But it will give you the background, and it also gives you good connections. Um, I'm very involved. I'm on a lot of boards at NC State, and uh, we have, you know, grant programs and competitions and Mm -hmm. um, all kinds of of programs for uh, helping our entrepreneurs uh, be successful. And uh, so there's a lot that comes out of being in that process. Provides a social aspect of it. It does. Yep. You're around other entrepreneurs, too, and uh, that it's very motivating and, and encouraging. Right. I tell a lot of times entrepreneurs ask me when I speak at a conference, they go, where do you get your idea from? And I always say the same thing. I said, find something stupid and fix it. And, <laughs> and if you don't know... Solve a problem. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't see anything stupid going on, just go work for someone for a while. And, you know, and I guarantee you, you will find the stupidity. There's plenty of it going around. You just find it and, and, and fix it. Yeah. And that is, your, that is your business idea. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like with education, and I, I agree, I mean, I think, I think it really just depends. Um, I, I think uh, people take, take away something positive or negative away from their educational experience, but uh, I, I definitely think it can provide like that social aspect, like you said, um, maybe provide even some, um, some discipline as well. Uh, but I think, I think that's right. I, it just really depends on a case-by-case basis. So I can't really say there's not like, hey, you have to 
you know, get a two-year degree or four-year degree in order for you to start something. You may, there's so many, how many people do we know have dropped out, like you said, right? So Filter Easy, I think, was an example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, so do you feel that right now in our economy, and, and this is, what I love about our country is like, there's so, I mean, entrepreneurship is the new thing right now. It's the, it's the keyword, right? It's like, it's booming. Everyone mm -hmm. wants to start something. Everyone has this idea, this unique idea. And I think it's it's definitely a positive thing. It's changing the country <clears throat> into a positive, uh, it's putting it into a, a positive direction for mm -hmm. sure. Um, but there's also a lot of noise and clutter out there as well. Um, and there's a lot of saturation. So many people have ideas, like I said. So do you feel that entrepreneurship is getting harder in our economy or do you think it's getting easier? I mean, there's a lot of tools accessible to us, right? But yeah. Well, you know, I, mean, I, I came along in the 80s and there were no grants. There was, you know, for uh, entrepreneurs like the... Uh, the NC Idea Grant or the Lulu Games or the, yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. it, we had no accelerators. We had no grant programs. Um, you were pretty, and if you told your parents you wanted to be an entrepreneur, they were, it was like telling them you wanted to be a rock star. You know? I mean, put, <laughs> what, what? You're going to go work for IBM. You know, yeah, put yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Put that silliness out of your mind. And so in that sense, yeah, entrepreneurs have no clue how easy they have it today by comparison. Right. Um, but that said, you know, now it's cool to be an entrepreneur. Maybe too cool. Um, I, I I talk to a lot of people um, that probably shouldn't be entrepreneurs, and and just and even if you can do something, it doesn't mean you're going to be happy mm -hmm. uh, doing it. Um, for an entrepreneur, uh, your day is never done. They call it business because you are busy all day long, and your your inbox is is never done. It's Flooded. always full. You have to learn to compartmentalize your life and just say, "I'm going to cut it off now." you know and then and hit it again tomorrow but uh, there's a, a tremendous amount of stress and pressure there's always additional things you can and should be doing um and some people thrive on mm. that they find that motivating um i like to be a little scared when i wake up in the morning if i'm not i mean, why get out of bed you know but there are other people that that would make absolutely crazy yeah and there are people <laughs> who want who like the predictability they like to know, they like to uh, work hard and have everything predictable, you know, in front of them. And that's just a personality thing. And, you know, I think that we got to be careful not to force people to be entrepreneurs who psychologically, you know, would not uh, be happy doing that. Because I don't care how much money you make. If you're miserable, you are not a winner, <laughs> you know. You really got to love what you do. I mean, you're going to wake yeah. up every morning and... Yeah. You know, it's it's a blessing to be alive. So mm -hmm. definitely got to enjoy it. I, I agree. That's that's great. So to kind of close it out, I always ask these three questions. Um, I call them the three hows. Okay. So how do you define failure? How do you define entrepreneurship? And how do you define success? Wow. Mm. So how do I define uh, failure? Um, I guess failure, you know, you got to start with saying, what are your goals? Um, I know people who have goals that um, we always think of goals as monetary and, and monetary success is just one right. feature, you know, um, I, I sit down and after taking some, uh, you know, uh, Stephen Covey uh, courses, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I, I suggest everybody uh, read everything you can find by, by Mr. Covey, but uh, coming up with a personal mission statement, you know, what is, what, how do you define success? What do you want your life? to amount to and you could say well you know I'd like to make a lot of money well is that your only goal and you know you know wanting to uh, you know my goal is I want to help people be successful I want people to look back and say I am partially where I am today because of my encounter with this guy yeah you know um, I want to make my investors money that is a great feeling when you make money and, and you can tell you worked hard and your investors shake your hand and, and they and they appreciate you and the entrepreneurs appreciate you and so uh, um, I'm very involved in Opportunity International, which is a, a charity, um, and I, I speak and raise money and, and uh, for them. Um, but we invest in third world entrepreneurs, and we're talking about a few hundred bucks here and there in mm -hmm. some business consulting. Um, but it, no. it sparks a, a whole micro economy yeah. in these third world places, and uh, has been incredibly impactful. We don't make a dollar on that. Um, oh, what was that called again? Oppor Opportunity International. Oppor Opportunity International. Yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway, so you define what is your you know what are your goals. Um, what do you want to do? Uh, and then 
uh, figure out a path to achieve those goals. And if you're not achieving those goals, and of course that would be failure, you know, but it all goes back to defining, you know, who you are, where do you want to be, you know, in five years, in 10 years, and um, are you doing the stuff that's going to let you check those boxes there, right. you know. And then um, entrepreneurship is, uh, <laughs> what is entrepreneurship? Uh, I don't, Always a you know, tough one. <laughs> Entrepreneurship is, uh, well, tongue-in-cheek, I say in my book that entrepreneurship is, uh, is a person that's so stupid they'll work 80 hours a week for themselves so they don't have to work 40 for anybody else. Uh, but uh, it, it is, um, it's a heck of a ride. Uh, another analogy I use in my book is it's like, uh, you know, you raise a little pot of money and you're trying to get cash flow positive before that runs out. And so the clock is ticking every mm -hmm. second. I said it's like jumping out of the back of a plane with no parachute. You just have a bag of really ambitious silkworms yeah. and you're knitting all the way to the ground. Uh, it's a rush. And some people thrive on it and some people it would actually destroy their quality of life. All right. Cool. Yeah, every everyone that I interview has a, has a completely different answer. I love it. <laughs> and, um, some past ones that I've interviewed um, about failure, they say it's very uh, failing and quitting are very different, mm -hmm. right? Or uh, giving up and just sure. You know. Well, we so. we start off with a lot of plans and we go out and we test. It sounds great to me, but as soon as we start talking to people in the industry, or, or we discover that we don't have the value props, mm -hmm. and I always say we didn't fail. We successfully discovered something that doesn't work. Right. Telling us we need to modify and go back. Yeah, I agree. And uh, how do you define success? Well, as I said, once you define your goals, success is achieving those achieving those goals. And however you, um, I know people who their goals have absolutely nothing to do with with uh, money our possessions and they're some of the happiest people I know yeah so it just uh, what goals are right for you the problem is uh, a lot of people will say their goals are one thing but you look at the, the life they're living day to day and what they're doing day to day mm -hmm. and it doesn't line up with their stated life goals so I think um, being a person of character is aligning what you say and what you do with what those life goals are that you have you know, uh, proclaimed. And I think when all that lines up, you're a happy, successful person. Cool. Awesome. Wow. I love it. David, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much again for yeah. being here. And where can people find you? Website, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn? Sure. Uh, the website is Co-Founders Capital. And we have all of our companies there. A lot of resources for entrepreneurs are there. Um, I also uh, tweet at the Startup Hats when I'm going to be at an event. Or, uh, um, I put uh, articles out um, often in the TBJ or the WREL TechWire, which used okay. to be Exit Event. Yeah. And, um, uh, and we are in uh, downtown Cary. And my email and phone number and all are on the website. And so we're happy to meet with anyone who wants to, uh, who wants to start something. Perfect. Cool. Thanks, guys. Uh, this is Michael Giorgio, co-founder of Imagine Ovation, and thank you again for watching Tales from the Pros. Have a great afternoon. Thanks, Thanks. Michael. Thank you, David.